Hi, I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are authors, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are what's the author responding to, what are the possible tensions between author, text, and audience, whose interpretations matter, what could be a miscitation, and how language is used and constructed. My guest today is Lizette Wanzer, a writer, editor, and workshop instructor. Her work has appeared in more than 25 journals, magazines, and books. She has presented her work at conferences across the country. She's the editor of the collection, Trauma, Tresses, and Truth, Untangling Our Hair Through Personal Narratives, is a contributor to the Chalk Circle, Intercultural Prize-Winning Essays, and the forthcoming The Lyric Essays Resistance, Truth from the Margins. She lives in San Francisco. First of all, I want to thank you for sending me the coffee. That was really generous of you and your publisher. I'm going to purchase this book for some of my friends because they were curious about it when I read it. I was promoting it on my social media and they were like, that's really interesting. So I thought, I'll just send them as gifts as well. <laughs> well, I want to begin with a preface in which you as the editor of the collection gave the reader an insight on how the collection came to be. And we know the story. It was first an idea at the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Conference in 2020, and you were in a panel with five other people discussing experiences with um, wearing natural hair. And in, in your preface and the subsequent essays, it's very clear that the book is not just about hair, but about the historical and ongoing racism and racial justice. You also provide memories of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the beginning of COVID as things that you thought about in your preface. When you finally pitched it to the publishers, what, what was the response? Were they supportive? What changed in the collection's initial developments? And, and then was there any big d- developmental change throughout the process? So I had actually proposed the panel for AWP for the 2020 conference in San Antonio. And I had applied three times before in three different years, never got accepted. And then the last time I was at AWP, I attended a session there that was called How to Submit a Strong Proposal for AWP. So I noticed one of the things they liked was um, diversity, a very tightly written description, and then they like alliteration and a catchy title. So I came up with Trauma, Trusts, and Truth, they accepted that proposal. And so I recruited four other authors to join me. And so the five of us read our essays about natural hair. And all four of those panelists, by the way, have work in the book. Mm-hmm. And then at our sessions close, uh, six women approached me afterwards and said, oh, where can we get the book? Do you have it downstairs in the book fair? I was flattered, but I didn't think their idea had any legs as a book. And then just a couple of months later, uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd happened. Mm -hmm. And during that summer, I was extremely enraged like every day. I'd wake up in the morning feeling rage, not just anger, but rage, and then go to bed every night still feeling rage. And it became this huge behemoth that was in my chest. Mm -hmm. So the one weapon I knew I could wield was my pen. And of course, the pandemic was ramping up at this time also so that didn't help and it dawned on me that natural hair is yet another form of policing another form of persecution and another form of erasure so i started writing the book proposal 
I got four publishing offers and an agent offer. And I'm 100% convinced, I tell everyone this, that that sort of response would not have happened during any other year. It happened because it was that summer of 2020. I'm certain of it. Um, and then not much actually changed between my initial vision and the conception of this project, except for my decision to divide the book into four sections mm-hmm. of essays with a poem opening each part. Then I added an appendix with a three-part reader's discussion guide and then the resource guide. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, not much changed between my conception and the end product. Mm-hmm. I'm, I never know how to express this, but it's, it's really disappointing that I want to be very delicate um, about perhaps the reasons why your book, your collection was accepted during 2020 and not before. I always try to frame these kinds of questions very delicately because I think there there's a lot of tension that go on with this kind of publishing world and then what gets prioritized later. Did it change anything effectively? I think those were really important stories. And I wanted to tell you that I read your book alongside uh, Dr. Garcia Pina's book. It's called Community's Rebellion. She's okay. um, a scholar who actually opens her stories about hair as rebellion too. So there were a lot of connections. I just thought that it's just a very personal way into talking about the institutional structures that you and your co-authors did so well throughout. I just thought it was a very lovely read and I learned a lot from it, not just about the textures of the hair, but how, how professionalization it's yes. talked about too, because of course it's it's not part of my um, cultural repertoire. But I think that's that's why I thought your book was just such a good guide to think about these kind of questions that are really important to Black women in Black communities. Mm-hmm. And I say all that because I want to segue to this phrasing narrative therapy that was coined by Dr. Athia Mbilashaka in her preface. Was it a preface or? It was a no, she wrote the foreword. The foreword. Thank you. So in this podcast space, I, I try to think through the sometimes fraught relationship between writer, text, and reader. And if one aspect of narrative therapy is to share the experiential collection space with Black women and writers, what do you and the authors hope non-Black readers like me take away from your collection? I I want readers who haven't had to contend with this type of discrimination Mm -hmm. to learn why it's not okay to just walk up and touch or grab our hair, uh, regardless of how fascinating you may find the styles. I want them to understand why it's not okay to claim that afros, neat braids, or dreadlocks, uh, or bantu knots are unprofessional in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I want readers to understand the significance and the role that our hair plays, not only in our current culture, but in our past, including during slavery and before the Middle Passage. You know, on the continent, the way women wore their hair signaled many different things. It it carried status symbols. Mm -hmm. You could tell from looking at a woman's hair, whether she was single or not, whether she was ready for marriage or not. Mm -hmm. And then during slavery, the slaves often braided escape routes into their hair. And so those were like walking billboards 
showing people the best ways to escape and other messages that they would braid into their hair. I also want readers to refrain from committing the kinds of missteps and the faux pas that so many of us relate in our essays and to understand why so many Black women in professional and public and academic life feel pressure to straighten their hair or get weaves or relaxers or wear wigs, you know, whatever it takes to make their hair look and behave more like Caucasian hair. Mm-hmm. And I want readers to understand that it's wrong to send a child home from school or discipline a child, um, yeah. girls and boys, because they're yeah. wearing cornrows or waffle braids or two-stand trysts or an afro. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, I want all readers to understand why we need a federal crown act. Mm-hmm. Crown standing for create a respectful and open workplace for natural hair. And it's also a, a synonym, crown meaning the hair on our heads. Mm-hmm. And why we can't leave the decision about passing anti-natural hair discrimination only to individual states. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what we have right now. I think we're up to 18 states that have a Crown Act. And then there are some municipalities that have it. But like in Louisiana, they don't have a state Crown Act, but New Orleans has one just for their municipality. Mm -hmm. So that means if I go to a state that doesn't have a Crown Act, they can offer me a position and make that offer contingent on my taking my dreadlocks out, for example. So I try to do kind of like discursive analysis. So you mentioned the constant touching of the hair. And then um, and I think it was, was it your story where an old white bank said something like snakes to describe dreadlocks? Like it was pretty, yes, it was appalling to me that someone, a stranger would go up to someone and say, your hair reminds me of snakes. It was just outrageous. There were lots of threads that kind of connect the the universality of what what black hair means. And um, I'm glad you brought up Crown because I didn't know about Crown Act until I read about, I think it was in your in your preface that you, you mentioned you gave the historical origins that it started yeah. in California. And so Crown is also kind of one of the citations that get repeated in the stories, as is Audre Lorde's Is Your Hair yeah. Still Political? And I was curious, when you were seeking um, contributors' work, did you ask them to read the same things to have an idea to have a cohesive set of stories or how how does collaboration work in a collective anthology i didn't actually ask them to read any sources it's just that so few black women get out of childhood without having some sort of confusing infuriating or humiliating experience regarding their hair that mm-hmm. we all kind of know the same touch points Mm-hmm. Um, and Audre Lorde's essay is a cultural touch point in this mm-hmm. area. I knew I didn't want 10 hot comb stories or 10 jerry curl mm-hmm. travail you know, narratives. Mm-hmm. And I also didn't want the book to be for the Academy only. So I wanted mm-hmm. stories that were accessible to general readers. Mm-hmm. So in some instances with the contributors, I did make some editorial change requests to alter an essay's emphasis. Maybe if I already had an essay that was telling a particular Jerry Curl story, for example, mm-hmm. um, I might ask another contributor to say, you know, I already have something that's 
along those lines, could you maybe in your essay focus on X, Y, Z instead? But yeah, that that's, that's all I did. Um, <laughs> the four sections worked out well because of those editorial <laughs> requests that I made. So I could <laughs> separate them into, you know, section one, a critical lens, section two, the pilgrimage, section three, intimate encounters, and in section four, the unshackled chronicles. So that's how I shaped it, the, the overall book. But I didn't, other than asking for some changes in emphasis, I didn't dictate to the contributors uh -huh. of what they should write about. I see. And um, so I was going to not snicker, but maybe I'm more self-deprecating than not. So I, I consider myself as somewhere between academia and not academia. Mm -hmm. And what I found really remarkable in your book is just like the the in-betweenness of creative writing and and the critical theoretical scape. In fact, you started the book with, I think it was yes. a critical lens, which was really yes. pretty high level stuff. But I found that the way that you and your contributors wrote blend everything so well together. And I want to remark too on the writers in your collection. They come from academia, law, creative writing backgrounds. And, and you had mentioned earlier that you started each section with poetry. Can I ask you why you wanted to start with poetry? You know what? I think that I I don't recall, but I think one of the contributors who used to be one of my students, she sent in a poem and it was so beautiful. I think it was the very first poem, uh, The Ancient. And it was so gorgeous. And I said, I've got to find a way to include this. And I said, but it's going to look awkward to have one poem and then all these essays. And then I thought, well, from having four sections, I can have one poem open each of the sections. Um, plus it, you know, opened the submissions to poetry as well. So mm -hmm. that's how I did that. So Iris, thank you. You did that for me. <laughs> as an editor, well, first of all, you have an MFA. What was your track? Was it? Fiction writing. Fiction writing. Yes. Um, so as an editor, how do you navigate any tonal writing differences or even like this idea of blending genres? So it doesn't have to be cohesive, but it, it, it makes sense in a prose-like way. And um, if like you wanted the tone to be consistent or if it were to diverge because of just the vast amount of writers you had, how do you make it work? I guess in this sense, it's like a question on structure. Right. So hence the four sections. Mm -hmm. um, so section one, a critical lens, that's where the work is interrogating the topic of natural hair from a more expository, analytical, mm -hmm. um, philosophical vantage point combined with you know, still highlighting the author's personal stories. So they weave mm -hmm. their personal stories into the, that section. Section two, the pilgrimage, that's tracing the author's journeys into the liberation of wearing mm -hmm. their natural hair and just sharing the Black joy they feel making the decision to go natural. But even those stories have, you know, contain pain, grief, and humiliation. Mm -hmm. Section three, intimate encounters, the author are ushering readers into the core of family relationships, relating the 
bonds and the fissures and sometimes the unanswered questions that come up as a direct consequence of our own family members uh, criticizing our natural Mm -hmm. hair and, and understanding that that criticism, that disregard is born of fear and generational trauma, mm-hmm. right? It, paradoxically, it does have our best interests at heart. Our elders are concerned that we won't get a job. We won't get a well-paying job. We won't find a, a life partner, all kinds of things. And that comes from generational trauma being passed down. And then there's colorism as well, even within the families and especially some of the Afro-Latina writers struggle with that. And then the book closes with section four, The Unshackled Chronicles, where those authors are speaking about their journeys, about reclaiming their hair from majority culture expectations Mm -hmm. to embracing it in its natural state as an expression of liberation and self-acceptance and triumph. And I think it was turning the lens right side up. That that was the last entry, right? Yes. And you included ads, ads in the story, and you juxtapose that with, I can't remember the exact scenario. You mentioned the movie, like how everyone assumed that Bo Derek was the one who popularized the, yeah, the, the braids and the bees. And, and you were, you were a very young child and even you knew that was absurd. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if you were ending on a, a memory note and also, how black hair historically has, I mean, people in the culture knows like the the culture about it. How do you see hair being talked about today? Do you see any kind of progress in in understanding and appreciating locks or natural hair? I mean, I think the Crown Act is a start Mm -hmm. and I'm proud to say that California was the first state to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you, Senator Holly Mitchell, or she's now... She's now on the Los Angeles Board of Supervisors. But thank you for using that in 2019. And thank you, Governor Gavin Newsom, for signing that into law. New York was the second. And now we're up to 18. I believe I can't quite remember what the last most recent one was. I know Oregon signed an act this year, and I believe it's Illinois that's the most recent if I'm if I'm correct on that. So I think that that has helped the conversation. And then also, of course, the new series, The Hair Tales, that started broadcasting, I think, on OWN, uh, on Oprah's show. So that has come up. And then I ran my Trauma, Justice, and Truth virtual conference in the summer of 2021 mm-hmm. and had about 200 people attend that from eight or nine different states and also from three countries, including Brazil, Canada, and Kenya. So I think there's more awareness about how to respect our hair. Of course, we still have misappropriation going on, like Bo Derek did in 10. But there have been several programs on CNN also where people have discussed this topic and I think people have heard about the very many accounts of children being Mm -hmm. disciplined or sent home because they're wearing natural hair. Yeah. And um, I thought it was really striking, too, that a lot of your authors talked about, I mean, you said the word earlier, policed 
because of yes. the way they were at school when they were kids. And then some of the authors also had kids who also were disciplined. So I think like, I just, there's just something, it's just not connecting, you know, yes. like this kind yes. of, so I'm also glad that you brought up colorism and, and these narratives with hair because your books also has a global, global perspective on how people talk about both hair, natural hair and colorism. And I wanted to ask, um, in addition to the stories in the United States, there are people who also wrote about their experiences in some places like Puerto Rico and Ghana. How important was it for you to decenter the U.S. to add these kind of narratives? My aim was less on decentering the U.S. Mm-hmm. and more on welcoming in a, a broad set of narratives by U.S. writers. Mm-hmm. Um, even if some of those scenes, some of the scenes in those narratives occurred outside the country. And it's especially so because the, the book consists of both African-American and Afro-Latina voices. So because of that, there's quite a spectrum of places that crop up. For example, in these essays, you will see that Afro-Puerto Rican, Afro-Canadian, Afro-Brazilian, Garifuna, Ghanaian-American, um, and Nigerian-American voices are all represented. and also languages, Spanish, Portuguese, mm-hmm. Gadafuna, I believe Ghanaian, and Jamaican Patois all make appearances in the work. But the writers are all U.S. writers, but some of them have cultural connections to other countries or were born in, in other countries. So there's a wide spectrum, but they are all, they identify as Black U.S. writers, all of them. Or Afro-Latina. Mm-hmm. After your last entry, you also provide resources, like you refer to them, discussion questions and even references, like further reading, whether that's through text or media, like documentaries and films. And then there's a pretty comprehensive list of hair shops and hair care shops in the U.S. And I wonder, did you compile that? Well, um, Or whose idea was it to make this kind of compilation as references oh it was my idea yeah and uh, <laughs> i compiled it oh okay um, yeah that's just a smattering of course of the you know huge number i mean otherwise the whole book could be consisting of only lists yeah but i wanted to show that in as many states as i could find mm-hmm. salons that focused especially on natural hair uh, I provided a listing for them. And the same thing with the children's books, books in general, films, and then even natural hair festivals. Some people don't mm-hmm. even know that that exists. The U.S., and I think the largest one in the world is in Paris. Um, and then there's a major one, Curly Treats in London. And then also a list of Natural hair organizations are actually organizations focused on natural hair, including a couple for for children to help them take pride in in who they are. And then the study guide, I put that in there so that if people wanted to teach this in college or in senior high school, that there would be some questions that they could Mm -hmm. assign for writing exercises. So the reader's guide is divided 
Um, the questions are grouped under reflecting on personal experience, uh, reflecting on the readings, and reflecting on dialectic topics. <laughs> so, for example, one question for thought is, which specific tensions associated with natural hair are responsible for inheriting social, familial, and workplace mistreatment? Mm -hmm. um, another one, probably more geared for college students, is in what ways is the process of attaining the hegemonic ideology of Pelo Bueno a violent journey for Latina women? And I'm happy to say that SUNY Albany will be assigning this book to some of their students. And then I've had interest from a university in North Carolina as well. Uh, just out of curiosity, from what, what departments? Albany, I don't know yet. They just asked me to come out because they're doing a natural hair sort of festival or something in okay. the spring. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're going to fly me out there to come in and speak with their students and then also with the community. Um, and the natural, the North Carolina one, I believe she's in African-American studies. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations. That's great. So, thank you. I, I know when I wrote to you initially, I told you I noticed that the copyright of Trauma, Dresses, and Truth was 2023, but you said the book is officially out, has been out yes. since November 8th, has it been? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is the one I received, is it is it an advanced reader copy or... Uh, no, I think that's okay. a regular copy, but we decided because it was coming out so close to the end of this year to mm -hmm. make the copyright 2023. Okay. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, like, because the copyright, I want to know if there were any changes, but it sounds, it's just as is, isn't it? Yep. yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, now, that, now that you're oh, doing your gosh. book tour and being invited to give talks about your your collection, what has the reception been like? Are you mainly asked to speak in, in Black communities, or is it more general than that as well? Uh, so the official launch just happened a few weeks ago. So, mm -hmm. so far, um, I'm doing a couple of podcasts, and we had our East Bay launch over in Oakland this past Sunday, which was at mm -hmm. Marcus Books, which is an African-American bookstore. Next week, I will be at the African-American Museum and Library of Oakland. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see, January, I will be at Green Apple Books on the Park in San Francisco for the San Francisco launch. Then Black History Month is very busy. And so far, it is mostly cultural institutions or cultural departments within larger institutions. For example, the um, Diasporic People's Writing Collective is having me come down to San Jose State in February. And then I'll also be at different conferences, a reading from the book, such as the Southern Humanities Council, which is in San Antonio. I'll be there at the end of January. And the Popular Culture Association, I'll be there in San Antonio again in April for that. And I'm, I'm not sure about SUNY Albany. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I, they contacted my publicist for that. So mm -hmm. I'm curious to find out how they heard about the, the book. Uh, and about me. So I'll be asking him that today. <laughs> so you sound like you have such a busy schedule. I'm only thankful that you carved out some time to talk to me on this, this very tiny podcast space that I have. <laughs> so when you do these kind of um, promotional tours, do you 
do you usually go with the collaborators or how how does um promotion for an anthology collection work? Uh, it'll be a mix. So this past Sunday, five of my contributors were there with me oh, wow. and we had a lot of fun. <laughs> um, pretty full house also. And we moved a lot of books. So that was nice. Everybody got their books signed, not only by myself, but by five of the contributors. Mm-hmm. Let's see. We're going down to L.A. next month to do an event at Malik Books. And two contributors will be flying down to join me at that. There'll also be two contributors at the San Francisco launch next month uh, at AMLO, the African-American Museum and Library of Oakland. That will be just myself. And then the conferences will be just myself. Although I saw a conference call for papers yesterday that they would like full panels. So what I generally do is when I have an opportunity like that, I send it out to my contributors and I'm like, first come, first serve, if you're interested in doing this, so I can Mm -hmm. go ahead and I'm trying to spread the love around so that yes. the same contributors mm-hmm. aren't at, you know, every, yeah, yeah and they yeah. all have something to brag about and put on social mm-hmm. media and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, it, I want them to understand this is a huge publicity opportunity for them mm-hmm. as well. So it was great to have five of them show up this past Sunday and some of whom I hadn't ever met in person because the book was taking shape during a pandemic. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have, I'm only asking because I'm trying to learn more about how to collaborate. And it seems like you have a lot of great stories about how to work across collaborations and even disciplines. And I find that really aspirational and very inspiring. So, Lizette, my last question to you is, if it's not too soon to ask, and if you're able to share, can I ask if you're working on any new writing projects or any new written volumes or work, whatever you can share? So I'm working on my next book. And this one is, yeah, um, I got funding to help support this. So it's called Building a Career as a Literary Artist of Color. And it's based off of the workshops that I teach by the same name. And I began offering those during the summer of 2020, that turbulent summer. Uh, The underlying principle in those workshops is that in order to raise the trajectory of your writing career, just as much work must occur outside of the studio as within it. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're artists, but you also have to provide care and feeding to the business side of being a writer, of being an author. So without that crucial understanding and without applying the principles and the practices that catalyze that care and feeding, it's tough to grow a sustainable career as an author. Mm -hmm. Uh, Students would complete my workshops and then often ask where they can purchase the book so they can continue with the strategies and the practices that they learned over the six-week course. And since writers of color do have concerns that are particular to them uh, vis-a-vis the publishing industry, such as how we're regarded, um, the automated categorization of our work that occurs, the pigeonholing that occurs, Mm -hmm. I'm writing this book for them. And I really wish I'd had a book like this 20 years ago. I really And I remember looking for it. So this will be a combined book and workbook and drawing on the material from my workshops. Mm -hmm. So what what you've been telling me, um, a summary of your new book, it it reminds me of like, I think it may have been 2020, 2021. Do you remember like the hashtag publishing paid me and it it became a big revelation that publishers really... 
Yeah. Essay publishing so white. Yeah. yeah. Oh, publishing so white. Right. Thank you for coming me. I still feel like the discourse hasn't yet settled. Still, writers of color are underpaid compared to their white counterparts. And I am. Um, I wonder if in your book you have a section about um, this kind of disparity. In the book, what I will be discussing is the state of the publishing industry mm-hmm. and the history of it and why we are so often shelved in only one place in the bookstore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that's not the most appropriate shelf mm-hmm. for us to mm-hmm. be placed on. And then in my workshops, I also go into this mm-hmm. and explain why I'm teaching. I teach the workshop for general audiences. And then I've mm-hmm. got the one that's specifically for writers of color. Mm-hmm. And I explain in that workshop why I'm teaching one specifically for writers of color. Yeah. You know, after this summer of 2020, all the publishing houses, as well as every organization in the country, was plastering platitudes on their websites about, we stand in solidarity with Black Lives yeah. Matter, and you know we mourn the passing of Brianna and George, or whatever. Everybody mm-hmm. was doing that. Um, at the same time as our then president was admonishing white supremacists to stand back and stand by. Yes, I remember. Um, <laughs> and then I believe there was a publisher, one of the big four, I think it was Random House, that waived reading fees for the month of September of 2020 mm-hmm. for writers of color. So that great big, you know, movement came on the heels of that summer. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to last <laughs> forever. Yeah. Uh, and there just aren't enough of us in the publishing industry either. Mm-hmm. So there, there are some issues there that I want my students to be prepared to face mm-hmm. and to understand how to navigate. Yeah. And I, I'm i sorry if I keep belaboring the point, but I'm learning so much from the way that you're, you're the, the emphasis that you want to focus on publishing. And, and I also think workshopping has similar problems like MFA programs. I've heard kind oh. of similar stories. And I wonder because, um, well, what were your experiences like when you were an MFA student? Was it very... Uh, mine was actually okay. Um, yeah, well, that's good to hear. <laughs> mine, yeah, mine was actually okay. It was okay. And also, because when I did my MFA, I already was publishing and, mm-hmm. you know, winning contests and so on. So I wasn't at the nascent stage. Mm-hmm. It was more for me just finishing some unfinished business. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, though, for my students, I have heard some pretty horrific tales. Mm-hmm about surviving or barely surviving their MFA programs because so often they hear off-color remarks being made and they're in the position of having to educate everyone, including their professors, which is, you know, uncomfortable Yeah, in that position. And also they're often not writing for, the people they're writing for are not in the workshop with them. Yeah. So it's not their audience and yeah. there are a lot of misconnections and I remember one point in my program, we were reading Beloved, Toni Morrison, and we were discussing this part where the the slave woman um, saw slave owners riding into town and she wanted to kill her children to spare them. Mm-hmm. And I was the only Black person in the room and we went around the table and everybody was like, I just can't imagine 
why a mother would want to kill her children. And then when it came to me, I said, no, I totally get it. I absolutely get what she was trying to spare them from. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nobody got that. Mm -hmm. Nobody got that. (laughs) It was strange. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why I always, and I hope that um, my questions to you weren't coming from a place of ignorance, but rather for, for me to think about what it means to read someone's work when they're outside of my kind of cultural repertoire, which I think is very important. And I'm so happy that I was able to interview you. And I hope that you can come back when your other book comes out so that we can talk more about <laughs> it. Because I'm very interested in MFA and workshop programs because as a PhD student, those haven't been like workshopping has, I haven't had a good experience, but um, I'm hoping like your book kind of bridges those gaps and those kind of tensions that many of us feel in those kind of very white dominant spaces. So I'm very thankful for the conversation and um, can't wait to have you back. When, when might your book be released in about a year? Oh, it'll probably be a couple of years. Okay. Well, I, I'm always around. I'm happy to keep in contact <laughs> with you. So thank you so much, Lizette, for this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank, thank you, you for, thank you for um, having me. Yeah, you're so generous and you're so, I don't know, I feel like it's very, it's very dark here, but you're you're being very positive. So there's like a lot of light right now. So, <laughs> so thank you so much, Lizette. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnAnnaDroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time. <laughs>